Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are the majestic Lord of all, the God who has created everything, the God who rules everything. We acknowledge that we come before you very small, before your greatness, in and of ourselves sinful and undeserving of your kindness. We know that you are a God of grace and mercy. We know that you have shown your kindness to us in the Lord Jesus. And so we humbly ask that you will speak to us, that you will open our hearts to what you have to say, that you will enable us to hear your word and to hear it in a way that um, we don't distort it by, uh, by our sinfulness. That your spirit would work in our hearts, um, pointing us to Jesus. Um, and uh, this time we pray. When someone talks to you about blessings, what is it that you think of? What are the blessings from God that are important for you? What is it that you want from God? Some people come to church to ask God for blessings. In their old religion, they used to go to the temple to ask their old gods for money and success. And now they've become Christian, they come to the church to ask God to do the same thing. They've become Christian in name, but have they really been converted? Are they still practicing the old religion in a Christianized form? But sometimes this asking God for things does, does seem to work, doesn't it? God blesses people with good things. And then they come to you with stories about how they did something good and therefore something good happened to them. They gave money to the church, so God gave them ten times back. Dedicated themselves to God, and so God gave them wealth and relationships and happiness. But is it, is it always like that? And what if something goes wrong? What if they don't get what they were asking for. What if they don't get what they're expecting? Is God not so powerful? Or are they less dedicated? And what about non-Christians? Most of the richest and most successful people in this world, from a worldly point of view, are not Christian. If worldly success and godliness were correlated, surely it will be the Christians who are most blessed. And yet it's obviously not the case. In the Old Testament though, God did promise material blessings to some people, didn't he? Back in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, God called Abraham and made him great promises. Promised him many descendants, that his descendants would take over the land of Canaan. Promised to bless him, through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. God was going to use Abraham's offspring to 
overturn the curse of the na- that the world has been under since the fall? And then Abraham, he had his son Isaac, also given the same promises. And then Isaac had the two sons, Jacob and Esau. Remember back in chapter 25, we saw that God said that Jacob, though he's the younger one, is the one who's going to inherit the promises. And then Jacob grew up and managed to persuade Esau to sell his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. He tricked his father into giving him the blessing that he was supposed to be reserving for Esau. Esau was so angry, wants to kill Jacob, Jacob has to run away. And on his way to Padan Aram, far from the land of promise, he's still in the promised land here, he's about to go there, and what happens? God appears to him at Bethel. And God gives him the same promises that he made to his grandfather Abraham. Many offspring, offspring take possession of the land. Through his offspring all the nations of the world will be blessed. He promised Jacob that one day he will bring him back. He will look after him. He will be with him. One day bring him back. And Jacob at that time said, Okay, God, if you're going to be with me, if you're going to bring me back, then you'll be my God. And I will build an altar to you here at Bethel. So Jacob goes to Haran, you remember? He's tricked by Laban. But God still blesses Jacob there and he gets many children and, you know, many uh, flocks and all those things. And God tells him to go back to the promised land. Saves him from Haran, saves him from Laban, saves him from Esau, who now forgives him, disciplines him, wrestling with him overnight, gives him a new name, Israel. And he went to the promised land, settled a town there, bought a piece of land, built an altar to God, named the altar God, the God of Israel. But nothing good happened there. Jacob brought him to great Father of perpetrator came to propose marriage. His sons tricked him. Rescued their sister by massacring the men of the town. Stealing all their family property. And as we saw last week during the course of that, Jacob that dangerously close to giving up on maintaining the distinctiveness of God's people and assimilating with those people of the land. Because they weren't, they, him and his sons weren't involving God in their decision making. That's where we were up to last week, yeah? And now, in chapter 35, we see a change for the better. But once again, God has to take the initiative. Chapter 35, verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Remember, that's what Jacob promised to do initially. He should have done it before, hasn't he? He should have done it ages ago. But now God is so kind, He speaks to him and reminds him of His promise. Isn't that good of God? God has been gracious to Jacob have to do that. He reminds Jacob, he says, go to Bethel, dwell there. That's where I want you to be. Even when Jacob forgets his promise to God, God remembers his promise to Jacob. He's gracious. 
I wonder if there are promises that you have made to God that you need to be reminded of. At your baptism you promised that you were turning your back on the world, the flesh and the devil to follow Jesus. When you put your faith in Christ, you promised to let Him be your King, your Lord, your Master, to rule you by His Word. Letting Him do that? Letting Him rule in your marriage? Relationship with your boyfriend and girlfriend? Your workplace? Your entertainment? The use of cyberspace. God is calling Jacob back to his promise and maybe calling some of us to do the same. Well, Jacob listened and obeyed because the God who wasn't even mentioned in the last chapter has actually been using Jacob's experience there to mold him and change him as a person. And so Jacob leads his household in repentance. Verse 2. Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments as a sign of a fresh start. And then let us arise and go up to Bethel that I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. You see, God has been kind to Jacob. He has been with him He has answered him in the day of distress. He has blessed him. In his mercy he has shown faithfulness to Jacob. And now in response, Jacob is dedicating himself and his whole family solely to him. And he calls upon his household and all the people that he leads to to put away the foreign gods, to get rid of idols. If God was really to be their God, they cannot mix, mix one. No heaven God plus idols. God was to be their God. He is to be their God. And so in verse 4, and they came to Jacob, they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God has been so faithful to us in Him. God has fulfilled all His promises to us in Him. God has come to us in Him. God has rescued us in our distress. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And God Himself has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. The God who was faithful to Jacob has been faithful to us. And he calls us to be fully devoted to him. I wonder if there's anyone here who has an idol that you need to get rid of. You may have idols in your house from your old religion. You may have so-called Christian idols superstitious paraphernalia that some people trust instead of trusting in God. Or you may have secular idols. People you're in relationship with. 
things you own or strive to own, ambitions that you pursue that are more important to you than God. Anything that you build your life on that gives you your meaning and purpose in life instead of God is idle. And that is you then repent. Get ready for a fresh start. Put away your foreign gods. Bury them. Go to the house of God. Go to the place where you meet God. Jesus. Go to the altar that God has built for you. The cross where he was sacrificed for your sins. Make that your home, your dwelling, the place where you are settled and at peace. Now the journey to Bethel must have been a dangerous journey to make. Jacob already was worried in the last chapter if the people of the land gang up against him after Simeon and Levi had gone and massacred the town. And the whole company will now have to walk along the open road. It may explain some of Jacob's previous reluctance to go up to Bethel. But now that God has appeared to him again, he has emboldened him. And once again God looks after him. Verse 5. And as they journeyed, the terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. So they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. God, God protected him. And so in verse 6 they arrived safely at Bethel. Jacob and all the people with him. And then he keeps his promise that he's made all those years before in verse 7. Builds an altar and calls it El Bethel because God had revealed himself to him when he fled his brother. The word Bethel means house of God. Beth, house, El, God. Bethel, house of God. El Bethel, God of Bethel. God of house of God. So, what happens when they get to Bethel? Don't look at the Bible. Just a bit, huh? What do you think is going to happen? You would think that if God has been blessing Jacob so much when he was being disobedient, now there'll be there'll be even greater blessing now that he's being obedient, wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, first thing that happens when they get to Bethel is that someone dies. Okay? Uh, can you go and open the door uh, in? Just open the door and invite them in. Get on your brother. Don't look, everybody. Look here. Look here. Okay. Come and come. come. Uh, uh, where are we now? Verse 8. Deborah 35, verse 8. Somebody dies. Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak tree below Bethel. And he called its name Elon Bekuth. Which means Oak of Weeping. Isn't that strange? Sometimes people think that God guides by positive reinforcement. If God wants you to do something and you do it, then happy things happen. And if you don't, you do something else, then bad things happen until you do. So you know if you're doing God's will by if good things happen or bad things happen afterwards. Have you heard that kind of ideas? 
That's just not true, is it? Here they are. They're finally in the place where God wants them to be. And the first thing that happens is the old lady dies. And Bethel becomes a place of mourning. But Bethel is also a place of promise. Here at Bethel, God's promises are repeated. But first, Jacob's name changes to repeated. Genesis 35, verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paranaram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Now, actually, this happened before, hasn't it? Yeah? God's already changed his name back when he, after he wrestled with him last time. But you know, sometimes we forget our new identities, don't we? Jacob, we saw last week, forgot his new identities. Started working back the old ways. And here at Bethel, God reminded him that he is a new man. God reminded him that he had changed his identity. God reminded him that he had given him a fresh start. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we too have been given new identities. We are no longer slaves of sin. We are slaves of Christ. We are no longer children of wrath. We are beloved, adopted children of God. We are no longer condemned sinners. We are forgiven saints. And so like Jacob, we have a new identity to live up to. Sometimes we forget our identity. Sometimes God has to remind us who we are in Christ. God reminded Jacob of his identity. And then he reminded him of the promises. Verse 11. And God said, Be fruitful. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, what does that remind you of? Genesis 1 and that. Yeah. Buried before the curse. Wants the human beings to grow. No, no, no. He is, he, once again, he's He's bringing blessing. Before this was God's blessing on the humankind. Now He's bringing to Jacob blessing. Be fruitful, multiply. And verse eleven, or second half of verse eleven, a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So land, people, blessing—they're all here. The promises of God to make to Jacob on his way out. Chapter 28, once again affirmed here, with the additional promise of the kings coming from his body. Once again, God confirms Jacob as the heir of the promises to Abraham. And then, verse 13, God left. Verse 13, God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Interesting, isn't it? Shows that God's appearing to Jacob wasn't just you know, a vision or something in Jacob's mind, but, but something that was very real. Maybe it was like the, the man who wrestled with Jacob before. But what is Jacob's response? Verse 14. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Now, that would be a good point to end the story, wouldn't it? 
actually a couple of good points to end the story. We thought I've got a good point to end the story last week. Uh, but this would be a good point because now Jacob has come a full circle. Last time he was here, he was a cheat running away from home. Now he has come back, returning with God's blessings to fulfill his vow that he made when he was young. Through all the ups and downs of his life, God had been faithfully with him. And here, God has been looking after him. God has been keeping the promise that he made to him. And now, when he returns, God is affirming the promise to him again. Years have gone by, but God's plan stands and endures. And the Jacob who left has come back a changed man, penitent man. That would be a good place to end the story. But it's not the end of the story. Three more things have to happen before we see the end of the chapter. And all of them are sad things in their own way. The first one is the death of Rachel. Rachel was Jacob's second wife, the one he loved. Verse 16, they journeyed from Bethel, and while there was some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor. She had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. Remember how a few chapters ago Rachel said to her husband, Give me children or I die. Well, God did and she did. Remember how she named her firstborn son Joseph, which means, may he add because she wanted God to add another son? Oh, God answered a prayer. But she died in the process. And so, verse 19, So Rachel died. She was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. The pillar of Rachel's tomb, there to this day. And Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. So you've got to wonder, don't you? You've got to wonder. Jacob was the cheat, the liar, did all kinds of bad things and God protected him. Jacob's now changed. He's fulfilled his vow and his favorite wife dies in childbirth. You wonder what God is doing. Why do you wonder? You wonder because you think there must be a causal relationship between doing good and having good things done for you. If you are good, God will bless you. If you are bad, God will make bad things happen to you. Which is why when bad things happen, what do we say? What did I do to deserve this? That's not how it works, does it, friends? Now, there might have been some element of that within the Mosaic Covenant because of the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy and the particular covenant that, that there, but that's not like that in general. It's not like that today. It's not like that in time with the patriarchs. 
If you want to complain that Jacob has finally come good and then Rachel dies, you also have to remember that Jacob was this liar and this cheat and, and God blessed him and made him a big family and made him wealthy. No correlation either way. And if you want to complain that you do good things and then you suffer, well, you also have to remember that God has treated you far, far better than you deserve in saving you for in the first place. We're not told why Rachel dies. We usually don't know why these tragic things happen in our lives either. But don't expect things to become more easy just because you're becoming more godly. Don't expect things to become easier just because you're becoming more godly. Doesn't work that way. Even having God's promises, obeying God's commandments, doesn't prevent tragedy. And having God's promises doesn't prevent gross immorality within the ranks either. Now the next verse is a shocking one. Before we look at it, let me remind you who the characters are. Reuben is Jacob's first son. And he came from the wife Leah. Leah is Jacob's first wife, the one he doesn't love. Bilhah is Jacob's concubine, who was a servant of Rachel, who has just died with the wife that he does love. Now that Rachel is dead, is Bilhah going to replace Rachel for Jacob? So that Leah is going to continue to be sidelined? Or will Leah finally get the love and attention that she deserves? It's a bit like a soap opera, isn't it? Well, Leah's son Reuben has a solution. Verse 22. When Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Ugh. Isn't that shocking? Gross. His mother had been wrong, but this is not the way to write it, is it? Immoral? Disrespectful? Maybe even an indication that he's, that he's, that he's signaling that, that, that he's trying to take leadership from his father by taking his father's concubine? The only comment we have about it in this passage is the end of verse 22. And Israel heard of it. I don't know what Israel, Jacob, thought of it at this stage. We can probably guess. We don't know what action he's going to take. We know that he's noted it. He's heard of it. Many years later, when Jacob was on his deathbed, speaking prophetically. And he gives his blessings to his sons. He'll bring it up. Stick you, keep your finger or your yellow uh, bookmark in Genesis 35. And come with me to Genesis 49. Remember, he's dying. He's giving the blessings. He's speaking prophetically. 
And he says this about Reuben, verse 3. Chapter 49, verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Reuben would not lead. He would not have preeminence. He would not be the, have the glory of the firstborn. So who would? Well, give another finger in 49 and go back to our passage. Because there in verse 22 we have the list of the sons of Jacob. Nicely all ready for your reference. There were twelve sons of Jacob and the sons of the divided among the two wives and the two concubines. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. Now, the first four, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, of Leah's sons were the first four sons to be born. Right? The sons of Leah, those ones we've seen Simeon and Levi, we've seen they've disqualified themselves because of their behavior last week when massacred a whole town. Reuben is disqualified because of his behavior today, which means who is next in the line? Judah. And Judah was going to be the one, Jacob says, from whom the kings or the king would come. We go back to 49. Back to 49. So he says, no preeminence for Reuben. Last week we saw what he said about Simeon and Levi in verses 5 to 7. And verse 8 to 10 he talks about Judah. And he says in verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. You see, we one by one the sons of, of Jacob who were before Judah disqualified themselves through sin until finally it comes down to Judah. And the scepter comes to Judah. And 2,000 years later, Jesus will be born from the tribe of Judah. The king. God had a plan. And even the terrible sins of Reuben and Simeon and Levi were being used to bring his plan to fruition. And Leah might have been the unloved wife, but in God's plan she was the most important one, wasn't she? Because through her and her offspring Judah, he would send the Lord Jesus. Well, in verse 27, Jacob finally arrives home to Isaac. We're back in chapter 35. Comes to the place where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. His mother was presumably dead by now. Never living, never, ne never seeing her favorite son again after sending him away, after getting him to trick his father. But he goes back to the father now in time to see his end. And it's a happy ending. The days of Isaac were 180 years. 
And Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Well, that's the end of the section of the book of Genesis that's called The Generations of Isaac. The death of Isaac marks the end of that era. Now, even though, as we've seen over the last, oh, oh, during the series, the, the uh, main player was Jacob, the section is called The Generations of Isaac because Isaac is the senior living patriarch at the time. And next year, when we do Genesis 37 to 50, we'll see that bit is called The Generations of Jacob, even though the main player there is Joseph. Jacob's still around his time. But before we get there, we are given another set of generations, aren't we? We've got, still got chapter 36. The generations of Esau, also known as Edom. In verse 2 to 8, uh, we see Esau's immediate family. Uh, and then we see how they got to a place called Seir, where they settled. Uh, it begins in verse 2 with the reminder, Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Right? Shouldn't do that. And then it finishes in verse 8, that he settled in the hill country of Seir. Shouldn't do that. He's gone out of the promised land. He settled there. That is, he's given up his distinctiveness and he's left the promised land. And he does not inherit the promises. And once again, even though it was prophesied, even though it was God's choice, it was also his fault. He's also doing that things, isn't he? And then you've got the title there in verse 9, the generations again. Follows by a genealogy which, which uh, traces the descendants of various sons of Esau, going all the way down to verse 14. And then from verse 15 to verse 19, we've got a list of chiefs. Quite a bit of overlap between the, between the names in that paragraph and the previous paragraph, because many of the people in the genealogy are the ones who are the chiefs. And if you count up the chiefs, there are 14 chiefs in all, which means there's 14 clans or tribes to lead. And then in verse 20 we have another genealogy, the sons of Seir, the Horite. These are the original inhabitants of the land that Esau goes to. And then we see, you count up the chiefs there, and there are seven chiefs. And you realize that the Edomites are gradually outnumbering the Horites to take over their land. And so, as they take over their land, the descendants of Esau become kings in the land of Seir. And in verse 31, we see a list of eight kings who ruled in the land of Seir, or Edom, before any king reigned over the Israelites. You got that list there? And then in verse 40 onwards, we have the names of more chiefs of Esau. Eleven chiefs, each with clans and dwelling places. Maybe that these were the chiefs of the tribes that had land at the time when Genesis was written. And then that's it. That's done. So why has God given us chapter 36? What's the value of that chapter in the Bible? Well, first of all, it shows that God is concerned for the nations of the world. Even a nation that is not blessed, even a nation that does not inherit the promises, God still cares about that. And he still blesses them. 
are blessed in the same way as the nation from Jacob, but still blessed in a different way. In anticipation of the day when all the families of the earth will be blessed with the offspring of Jacob. But there is another thing. Remember the sibling rivalry between Jacob and Esau? And remember how Esau lost out on the blessing from, ja- from, from Isaac? Did Esau really lose out? Well, let's look what happened here. God promised Jacob a great nation. Jacob had 12 tribes. Esau had 14. God promised Jacob a land. Esau was given a land. They got that before Israel did. God told Jacob that kings would come from his body. The Edomites had kings before Israel did. So on the one hand, you could argue that Esau was, was blessed even more than Jacob. The things that he thought was important. Now if that is the case, then what's the point of being God's chosen people? What's the point of Jacob inheriting the promises of Abraham? If Esau gets it anyway, just more quickly, is it useless? Oh no. God didn't promise Esau that he would be with him. God didn't promise Esau that all the families of the earth be blessed through him. All that Esau got from God was not promised. It was just given out of God's sheer generosity. Theologians call that common grace. God makes the sun shine upon the just and the unjust. He gives good things to the undeserving, even the undeserving who have not been elected to be His people and have no promises from Him. That is why you can look around and see God's blessing on so many people who refuse to acknowledge the one who is blessing them. That is why you can turn and see people who don't know God and don't obey the gospel being prosperous and happy. They don't deserve it, but but they get it anyway. Just like believers don't deserve salvation, we get it anyway. It's grace. Many years before this, Esau has shown his own lack of faith in God's promises. The blessings that he got were all the blessings that he would want. God was very kind to Esau in giving him these blessings, but he, he missed out on the real blessings, didn't he? You see, the fact that Esau got the material blessings even earlier than Jacob must be an Old Testament hint that the real blessings not just material. There's something beyond that. God would indeed give Jacob the blessings of land and people and, and nation, but they would be a model that would point forward to the real blessings that would come to all the nations through Jacob. For from Jacob's offspring would come the Lord Jesus. He would be God-man. He would be the king that God would promise over and over again to Jacob's descendants in the Old Testament. 
He would be the one who would die for sin, pay the punishment for our rebellion on our behalf. He would be the one who would be raised from the dead and exalted as the Lord and the King of all. He would be the one through whom God's blessing would come to all the nations. He would be the means by which God would reverse the curse of the fall and reconcile the world to Himself. He would be the means by which God would create a people from all the families of the earth and give them a place in the promised land of the new creation and exercise His loving blessing and rule over them forever. To the human eye, Esau got more. But in God's economy, Esau wasn't chosen. His line would not lead to Jesus and to the real blessings in him. Sometimes we believers compare ourselves with non-believers. And we look and we think, hey, how come God is blessing them with all the success and He's not blessing me? I'm one of God's people and He seems to be favoring other people. That's not fair. They don't even acknowledge Him. Friends, don't be jealous of unbelievers. Be sad for them. Because they may have all kinds of successes in life, all kinds of common grace blessings. But in the end, unless they repent, they will miss out on the promises of God. You can have all the Esau blessings and miss out on the real thing. So let me ask you, are you someone who seeks for Esau blessings or for the real blessings? Are you someone who just wants God to make you prosperous or happy or get you through the next interview or get you through the next presentation or you through the next exam or are you really trusting in His promises for eternity? Because if you're only looking for God to help you in this life, you're looking for the wrong kind of blessing. Your vision is too narrow. Your longing is too low. Your God is too small. You've been led astray by so-called prosperity preachers or or your own sinful passions. We've already seen you can't make God prosper you by doing good or giving money to the church anyway. It's not how it works. And no, friends. Don't seek the Esau blessing. God gives, He gives. If He doesn't, He doesn't. Because God's got far bigger, more important agenda in mind. He's teaching us to be content in all circumstances. More important than the Esau blessing is the real blessing. Blessing that was won for you by Jesus and His death on the cross. The real blessing that God offers you is Himself. I will be with you. It is to be one of God's chosen people, saved by His precious blood. It's being with Him and all God's rescued people in the real promised land of the new creation. Where sin and curse and all its consequences of death and mourning and crying and pain are no more. It's being under God's loving rule for all eternity. I will be their God and they will be my people.